Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today it's gonna be another day where we're battling the accents. You're gonna have here the Spanglish and then also the Irish, you know, with our guest. You know, it's someone that has built several companies, done the full cycle, done the exits, uh, has even sold companies to to big companies, giants like Google. Uh, but I think that, you know, like we're really gonna find fascinating our guest today. So I guess without further ado, Paul Taylor, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Uh, welcome, and, and thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. So, born and raised in Belfast, you know, apparently there was a tremendous quality of life. How was life there? Yeah, so I was I was born in Belfast. Uh, obviously, I don't remember the the early years too well, but uh, um, you know, I, I, it was a, a Belfast was a. I was growing up in the 1970s, and Belfast in the 1970s was known for the terrorism uh, that was there. But but as a child, though, you adapt to you adapt to every circumstance you're in. And it all felt uh, very normal to me. It had the effect of depressing the economy, but it also depressed house prices. So my parents were able to afford a, a really beautiful house. It's something that would be completely unimaginable in London, where, where I currently live. You know, we had a front garden, we had a back garden. The back garden was big enough to play football. And it was, it was a you know, tremendous quality of life. So, uh, so it was very, very, very happy. It, it, people find that fine, uh, find that odd that they, they associate, you know, Belfast and the Troubles with such negative experiences. But, but for me, it was, it, it was a very happy time. Uh, yeah, very happy time. And, and certainly, you know, my school years there was, was, uh, you know, was a great time too. Gr great schools in Northern Ireland, and and, and that uh, th that's not particularly well known. But but that really served as the basis for a future academic career. And talking about schools, I know that a Nobel Prize had a big impact on you. So what, what was that story? Yeah, so it took me a long time to realize that I was kind of good at school. I mean, I was always good, but it, it, but it, I wasn't I wasn't great, you know, when I was young because I was always a bit of a dreamer and always thinking of things and always wanted to do stuff. But but I love maths, I love physics, uh, I love history. But I remember in particular one time in. Um, in our uh, fifth year at school, which would have been about 16. And our physics teacher said, look, we've got a special guest visiting the school today. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so, so we were kind of snuck into the back of the hall. That was actually filled. So I managed to get a seat at the front. And our guest speaker was Ernest Walden. And he gave a talk, and I must have been, it was so profound and so interesting that I was completely uh, blown away by, by the talk. 
So Ernest Walton had gone to my school, Methodist College, Belfast, uh, and I think he uh, uh, left there in something like, uh, you know, 1920 or something like that. Did a PhD and then ended up at Cambridge University. And while at Cambridge University uh, in, in the early 30s, he was assigned the task of trying to split the atom. And at that stage, no, no one had split an atom. And so he was, uh, his was Walton and his, his uh, teammate was Cockroft. And, uh, and their boss was, uh, was Rutherford, who's, who's very well known. But he told the story of J.J. Thompson and Fermi and uh, all these people, you know, who are around the lab. And it was just absolutely incredible that, that he was, you know, sharing a cup of tea with the person who uh, first discovered the electron. Anyway, the, the great point of the story was he said that one day were, they were trying to split a lithium atom into two helium atoms. And uh, Rutherford was away one day and uh, uh, they... The, the, they put up the experimental apparatus in a way that, <coughs> that Rutherford thought wasn't going to work, and they gave it a go, and sure enough, uh, the, the helium atoms are, are detected as uh, alpha radiation, and uh, they detected that on a screen, and they were pretty sure they'd done it. Rutherford came back the next day, confirmed it, and off they went. And uh, for that, um, they became the first people in, in the history of the world to, to ever split an atom. No, no, it, it wasn't a it wasn't a fission reaction because it it, it split stopped splitting as soon as you stopped the energy going in, but it was still a first. And then in 1950, he won the Nobel Prize for physics. And I just remember, I was blown away and going right after that, I'm going to be a scientist. Uh, I I'd previously been very focused on being in a band at that stage, and, and the guitar just was was put to one side. And I thought, right, let, let's let's go and do some science. <laughs> That's awesome. And and talking about science, so you went to university and then you did your PhD, PhD in linguistics. Is that right? Uh, yes, uh, yes and no. Uh, so on on the uh, on the degree certificate, it certainly says PhD in linguistics, and I was in the department of linguistics. But let me just say, I'm world, one of the world's worst linguists. But uh, <laughs> when I was at Edinburgh University, they had an institution called the Centre for Speech Technology Research. So it's still there. It's a it's a highly regarded centre for. Uh, for uh, uh, research into machine learning, artificial intelligence, but the focus on speech technology. Speech recognition, which is computers listening to you, and speech output, text-to-speech, speech synthesis, which is the computer speaking back. And I started my PhD in this, and it was, it was a wonderful mixture of AI, algorithms, linguistics, and uh, coding. So uh, I learned to be a pretty good software engineer when I was there. And, you know, started bit by bit doing the thing, the first thing I became famous for, which is building text-to-speech systems. And I, uh, I mean, I had a similar similar moment of euphoria uh, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I was doing engineering, and we had one lecture on speech. And I just remember going, oh, this is so incredible. And then when I figured out you could do speech and engineering, I was just blown away. So, so it, it was a second kind of eureka moment uh, after the first with uh, Ernest Walton. And so I, I did my PhD there and graduated in, in 92. I then spent, uh, I think, six years of postdoc experience in, in Edinburgh University, which are just wonderful years, and uh, doing AI and stuff. And, and what was really remarkable about artificial intelligence in that stage was it was very interesting, but no one cared. I mean, it, it, these days you have presidents and prime ministers and the Financial Times and everybody writing about AI. Back then, yeah. uh, it, you know, nobody wrote about it, nobody cared. Uh, certainly no one wanted to buy it. And so, but that was good because everyone left us alone and we could sit there and do our research. And sometimes in the kind of early part of your career, it's good to have space so that you can kind of develop and you can really, you know, train yourself and have thoughts yourself and not have to have, you know, too much pressure on you. And what do you think, what, what, what do you think has happened? Like 
why in the 90s nobody cared about AI and now every single entrepreneur that I hear pitching is talking about AI in their business? Well, that's that one. It's very simple. It did not work then. So, uh, and uh, the algorithms to a certain extent weren't that different. I mean, we had neural nets today. We have deep belief nets, which have got multiple layers of nodes. But the, uh, the essence of it, it, it isn't too differ different. The, the things that are different are one, compute power. So using cloud computing, I mean, you can train thousands of cores on, onto a problem. And the second one is availability of data. I mean, we were training on hundreds of pieces of data. And now today, you train on hundreds of millions of pieces of data. It, it, it didn't matter how clever we were. We just didn't have the, the capability to do it. Of course. And obviously, the more data, the, the better trained, you know, the, the artificial yeah. intelligence, no, the but, algorithms. But, okay. So, so here, you know, like, actually, like, after those years, you finally make the leap. Your first company, Rhetorical Systems. Tell us about this. Yeah, so, so I had, as the, as the 90s progressed and the, the dot-com boom was on, it felt very different to, distant to me. I was in Edinburgh University. I didn't really know any entrepreneurs. There was no real local tech, tech company um, scene there. But I, I, had a, I had an itch, but I couldn't scratch it. And uh, I remember one time in early 2000, uh, February 2000, I went to an event and I spoke at the event and uh, at lunchtime I met uh, Professor Peter Denyer who had previously worked at Edinburgh University and we got talking and then he had spun out his own company. He actually did uh, digital cameras or the chips in digital cameras way before anybody had really caught on to that. And we, and so, so he, he said, Look, why don't I come and visit you and we'll, we'll talk about it. So a couple of days later he came to my office and we sat down and I remember it quite clearly, it was about 4 p.m. And he sat down and he started to talk. And I knew nothing about companies. I mean, nothing. I didn't know what shares were. I didn't know what the letters IPO meant. I didn't know what stock options were. I didn't know what intellectual property was. Didn't know anything. Uh, but he wasn't put off. And I think this is a great lesson for entrepreneurs or anybody looking at somebody who's early on in the stages. Do not focus on what they know. You know, you can learn all that stuff. I mean, now I deal with options, contracts, and, uh, you know, uh, funding documents all the time. I can, can kind of do it in my sleep, but that's not the point. The essence is, you know, do you have the capability to do something else that other people can't do? And of course, being good at AI meant that, you know, that I had a leg up. And Peter knew he could get people to figure out all the legal side. So Peter talked me through it, and then he talked me through the war stories of his company, uh, Vision. And I just thought, this is just incredible. And I was so excited about the whole thing. And, and I remember thinking, you know, I, I went home that night just buzzing. And I just remember thinking, I, I, I have to try this. You know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And I just thought, uh, if I don't try it now, I mean, I was, I mean, the other thing I was, I was 32 years old by that stage. And I, I was already having kind of nervous ideas that, that I was too, too old to be an entrepreneur. And, and that's something that's, that's completely ridiculous. I'm, I'm now I'm 52. And, uh, you know, I, I am not too old. <laughs> You're never too old. It's all about what, what you can uniquely contribute to the market. That, that's the key thing. So sure enough, off we went and we got an order in pretty quick and the company just went crazy. And I remember we got an order from, uh, from Toshiba and we had to hire 25 people. And some, some of the work was kind of, you know, fairly easy to do uh, database work, but we had to get people that understood linguistics. And I remember... I mean, you know, I remember hiring uh, uh, a waitress at a party. I remember one time we were interviewing wow. software engineers all day. 
and I went to the pub and I was depressed because we hadn't found anybody and I was basically sulking at the bar. And then the guy beside me said, why are you sulking? And I says, can't find any good software engineers. I go, well, why don't you hire me? And uh, <laughs> he, he was a software engineer. So he interviewed That's him. Uh, interviewed him and he hired him. Uh, I, I, uh, one time I was in an off-license in a queue and I hired the guy in front of me in the queue. And, you know, it, there, was, there was just a lot of, it was a fantastic time. Completely That's naive, you know, didn't know what we we're doing, but but we had an order, we had a bit of cash, and uh, and then at the end of the year we did our first first fundraise, and this is how completely insane those dot com boom years were. The company was uh, nine months old. We raised two million pounds at a pre money valuation of twelve million, and wow. uh, and we had on the day we were closing, the word had gone out, so the phone was ringing in the lawyers' offices with people trying to you know preempt the bid, and and, and you know put their money in and uh you know it, it, i don't know any companies today that can raise two million pounds on a 12 money pre-money valuation after <laughs> uh, after 12 months but uh, uh and, and i'll say to be honest that was the high point in terms of share price <laughs> the uh the, the well, dot-com bust happened after that and uh and what, what was the business the business model here for rhetorical so that people get it that are listening yeah i mean to be honest we, we never ran it never really had much of a business model what we did was we built text-to-speech systems it was software we installed it it was often bought by telcos and uh you know other companies but it was a speech synthesis system but we we tried various uh business models we tried doing sat navs uh, we tried in so many things but we had sporadic sales in sporadic markets but but, but nothing that would it, it might have looked okay back then but it wouldn't be impressive today it, it was it was just it was just one-off pieces of good luck in, in a commercial sense so then what is one lesson that you took away with you from this experience with rhetorical? Uh, well, you know, on the positive side, do not be afraid to jump in. Uh, you know, get people who compliment your skill set and, and off you go. And you never, but, but on the, on the uh, uh, you know, on the kind of, you know, lessons learned of the sobering thoughts, I, I think it was a classic sense of us being too early in the, with the technology. It, because that same technology I mean, basically, it was the exact same algorithms. You know, eight or nine year, years later, we're powering Siri. And so, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't like we were uh, fantasists, but it, it, it just, just wasn't there. Uh, however, you know, do I regret any of it? No, no, I don't. I'll do it all again. Absolutely. I mean, that's uh, really what makes us, you know, is the, is the journey as entrepreneurs. So, so here you guys did an exit, and then you went to Cambridge. Uh, you yeah. did a couple of years there until another opportunity came knocking. What was that? Yes. Yeah, so, so because of the buyout, I, I had a I had a guarding me period for two years, which was quite quite a long time. But they paid me, and um, uh, so it, so they said the original contract you can't work. And I went really. I said what about what, what, <laughs> I, I said what about an academic job? And they said oh that doesn't count as work. Yeah, you can do that. Okay. So so, it, 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 so, so I was a, I was a visitor at Cambridge University for uh, uh, for two years. I, I wrote a book on text to speech. I think it's number 300,000 on the Amazon bestsellers list. So uh, there wasn't too much profit gained out of that, but uh, it, it, it was good fun. So everything I knew about text-to-speech, I wanted to put in the book just so I could, uh, I, I could keep it there. And then, but, you know, I wanted to do it again. It, it, you know, we hadn't had that great an exit. It, 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 you just got the feeling that it, it could have been better. We had the talent. Uh, it, it, we, we had the talent, you know, we... We had many things going for us, a great team, but we just didn't execute. So in 2006, I took two of my colleagues from um, 
from Atorical uh, and Tomlinson and Ian Hudson. And the three of us founded uh, Phonetic Arts which in 2006, which was uh, uh, primarily to do the same sort of thing, but for the computer games industry. And so the, what we were really going to do was, if you imagine a football game like FIFA or uh, Madden or something like that, um, it has a lot of commentary on it, but that's just cleverly stitched samples of speech. So what we were going to do was to uh, build a text-to-speech system that, that could do that so you could have live commentary in a football game, really reacting to what the players are doing. Very ambitious. But uh, off we went. And again, we did pretty good, but we had a similar problem. Just when we wanted to raise money, uh, you know, the great financial crash happened. And uh, I'm going, oh, God, here we go again. And so, so it, was, it was another good company. We, we got much more. We did better commercially, really, really... Uh, had a great market, but it, it was again the, the first half of the company was was really really good. The second half much tougher, uh, and we we're also very very lucky because we kind of hit the hit the time when if you remember Zynga, you know, hit the Facebook market with games and games started to move to mobile and online. Uh, sorry, browser based games, and, and that just meant that the the traditional revenue streams for EA and all those you know, Activision, all those sort of companies were was drying up a bit. And so the, the huge R&D budgets that they were prepared to spend on, on things was, was kind of lessened. So, so it, again, the timing, the timing wasn't really great. Got it. And obviously, Google came knocking. Yes. So uh, I do remember this. Uh, I mean, this was a key moment in my life. So in the summer of 2010, I got an email from my friend at Google saying, uh, can you, uh, this guy wants to speak to you. Um, and uh, so the guy was Debut Perkyastra and Debut called me a few days later and uh, I, you know confidentiality forbids me going into it but he, he he's a, left a very kind of he spoke in a very cryptic manner and uh, <laughs> and I eventually found out that he was from the Google he said I said well so what do you do in Google and he goes oh I work in mergers and acquisitions and I said and he didn't say anything else and I said uh, oh and I said uh, so are you planning to talk about acquiring my company and he goes well it might be <laughs> and, uh, and and I went. I looked at the phone and thought, "Wow!" And he said, "Look, why don't you have a think and uh, you know come to meet me in London and, and and let's talk about this." So I put the phone down and I stared at it for about twenty minutes. I went for a walk in the park, going, "Did Google just offer to buy my company?" And uh, I remember going. So I, I phoned one of the, the the investors and talked to him, and he, and he goes. Right. He goes, you know, st stop being an idiot immediately. And he goes, and I said, shall I phone him back with the price? And he goes, no, no, <laughs> don't do anything like that, you idiot. Uh, don't do anything. And uh, so the day before back, a few days later, I made an appointment in London. And he basically said, keep your trap shut. You know, answer factual questions about the business, but don't try and get in any negotiation. It, it, it's up to them to make the first offer. So, yeah. uh, so it went pretty well with Google. Um, I mean, they were very, uh, as I say, gentlemanly with the transaction. There was no kind of uh, funny business, but but it did drag on an awful long time. So they said, "Oh, it should be over in eight weeks," and it actually took uh, twenty weeks. Wow! Uh, and uh, yeah, and as things went on, of course, our pipeline had dried up because I was focusing on the company, and uh, you know, they they um, um, it, it got you know things got pretty tight. So. so uh, you know, the offer was made in uh, early August, I think. We kind of ran out of money at about the end of September. Uh, we stopped paying people's salaries in 
uh, October, November, and we had a bank loan and an overdraft, and we borrowed all the money we possibly could. So, I mean, we were absolutely out of it. But, but you know, it was just another week and just another week, and we were just about to close, and then it was Thanksgiving in America, and I went, oh, I nearly collapsed at that time. But, but the week after Thanksgiving, they said, right, we're nearly there, and. Uh, uh, you know, I remember the final days of the deal when, when y- y- you do know that it's basically there all the time, time, times and everything else. And then, uh, so we had, a, I mean, the negotiation was very, very tense. Uh, we, we had, a, it, it was it was firm but fair. So uh, the, Davey was a very, uh, you know, very good negotiator. So I'm not sure I won many points, but 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 we got there. But but I do remember the final day when we went into the Taylor Wessing office in, in London, who were representing Google and uh I signed all the docs. I think it was 2,000 pieces of paper to sign, and it took me about seven hours. But at, at, at the end, as I fi- finished the final one, the, the Google lawyer leant over and said, and there's a Google uh, uh, M&A guy there, and he said, uh, leant over and said, shook hands, says, uh, welcome to Google. And, and then the whole company be- became Google employees. Wow. And, and, and I understand that literally at the time of, of the signature, I mean, you, you had no more money for a return ticket. It was only a one-way ticket. Uh, yeah, yes, I mean, it, it, Google are very, very nice, but they're very rich. Right? So, it, so rich people often don't understand what things poor people have to go over. So it was agreed about a, a couple of weeks before the deal was meant to close that we were going to go to New York, the New York office, and onboard there because the speech team was there. So I said, yeah, yeah, c- come over, we'll put you up in the S Hotel on 31st Street, and you know, Google's uh, uh, down around kind of Chelsea and the meat, meat packing District. I had a look at the SOT. Oh, look tremendous. You know, it says, uh, and, uh, and I said, who's going to pay? Google will pay. Of course, Google will pay. It's the first week of Google. Don't worry about that. So uh, we were, oh, great, great. And a couple of days later, I hadn't really seen anything. So, so I pinged the woman and said, look, when you said Google are going to pay, are you going to book the tickets and then send it to us or what? She says, oh, no, no, no. You, you book it and we'll reimburse you when, when you get here. And I went, <laughs> oh, 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 no. So, it's, so there was, I think there was six of us who were scheduled to go. We just scrabbled enough money. We basically got one-way tickets out there. But when we got to the hotel, uh, we had to check at the hotel. So we made, Google made reservations for us. But you know the way you swipe a credit card at the hotel? Right, all those credit cards got rejected. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there, there was no money in the credit cards. But, but finally, uh, one, of our, one of our colleagues, uh, Alex Gutkin, uh, uh, who's Russian-Israeli, but he had some sort of dodgy Russian credit card and... Uh, uh, thankfully, a miracle that one got through, and we're in the hotel. And of course, of course, once we're in the hotel, you know, all expenses are paid. So, so we went straight to the bar, uh, T-bone steaks for everybody, you know, wine, uh, the, the whole works. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we, we lived like kings, and we, we were panicking. Every, <laughs> we're panicking any day, any day they realized our, our our credit wouldn't be good. But of course, uh, okay. that was on the that was on the uh, that was on the Sunday. The transaction closed on the Friday. That was on the Sunday. And then we, we started our working Google, but the, the money from the acquisition landed on Tuesday. Uh, and let me just say, right. and there's a famous fi- picture of us all lining up at a Citibank uh, ATM in, uh, in Manhattan. Uh, you know the way in uh, Manhattan you have the A-door, you know, indoor little room of the ATMs. So there's a picture of us in a line checking our balances and then you know, holding our fists in the air going, yeah, the money's landed. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and off we went. And let, let's say after that, there was no worries about being kicked out of the hotels. It was all pretty good. Wow. And I understand that also it was a nice outcome. It was a 5x uh, for the investors. So, so yeah. pretty good. Good stuff. So I know that, you know, now, you know, being in Google, I know that for you it was pretty shocking, the culture. Why? Yeah. So, it, it, so 
when I arrived at Google, I, I was completely blown away by how good the cult culture was. Um, uh, let me just say, you know, over the decades, corporate company culture has consistently got better, uh, at least for those who are uh, lucky enough to have kind of the high-end jobs. But Google took care of its staff in an incredible way. It had a really good atmosphere of people not being political and people being good to one another. Um, but, but most of all, it just had this incredible engineering depth of excellence. And, you know, when I saw how Google wrote code, it was, uh, put it this way, when I arrived at Google, I thought I was good at writing code. After the first week, I thought, they're going to fire me. I mean, I, uh, I, I, I've got to be the worst here. You know, every line of code was written perfectly. Everything was documented. Everything was tested. Everything was continually deployed. Everything was, you know, so lots of things that we take for granted today had kind of been developed at Google or invented at Google or further progressed at Google. And it was just a joy to work. But the th thing about Google that I, I, another thing that I really noticed was they hire a good person for every single job. And that means that, uh, that it, with a consequence, in most teams, the top people kind of carry the rest of the team to a certain extent. But Google had excellent people everywhere. And because of that, it just meant that you could, all you had to do is do your own job and you can completely rely on other people doing theirs. And, and that was just a real, uh, a really great feeling. But of course, I learned about, you know, how the cloud worked. I learned about, about you know, internal de development infrastructure. So all the great things that, that make Google te technology good. Uh, uh, there are business lessons as well, but, 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 but just the core engineering culture was really something. And you did last there for quite a bit, uh, for about three years, a little bit over three years. But then, again, you know, opportunity comes knocking. And this is your your recent baby, Thought yes. Machine. So tell us about Thought Machine. Yeah, so, so I studied Google for three years. I had a lock-in for three years. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. But I thought, look, Larry, you know, why am I sitting here making Larry Page even richer? He's a very nice guy, but he, he doesn't need the money. Uh, so I decided, uh, you know, to leave Google. And um, I took a little bit of time out. And then I thought, right, I think I've got one more startup in me. So we founded Thought Machine in, in June 2014. And I, I learned a lot from Google. So uh, to be honest, I learned more from Google than I did from doing my own two companies. Because once you've, you've seen what good looks like, you've seen it done. And you go, it can be done. And it can be done at this tremendous level of scale. So I was, well, I enjoyed my time in Google and I enjoyed my time in, uh, in Silicon Valley. I, I wanted to remain in London. And FinTech then was just kind of bubbling up and coming along. So I said, okay, let's do FinTech. And so, you know, it was already going to be a cloud. It was already going to be FinTech. And I wanted to build a co company culture that had excellence baked in. So there was a lot from the Google, Google company culture that, that, we, uh, that we borrowed. So we, uh, uh, we found a thought machine. I did the obvious thing. I, I, I hired some of my mates from Google. I hired the other the core team, and of the 2014 people who joined uh, Thought Machine, there's you know the seven of us who are you know re really the <clears throat> the backbone of the engineering part of the company, and uh, and off we went, and uh, we got some deals in uh, fairly early, uh, but the, the real the penny dropped for us, or the key point was uh, about the middle of 2015, when we saw that uh, we, we we came across this opportunity in core banking, um, we became aware that. You know, traditional banks were on this terrible legacy IT stacks. They had all sorts of problems, and we thought, you know, they—it's like they've been—it's like some one of those science fiction films. They, you know, they've been lost on an island, cut off from civilization. We say, you know, we stopped doing this stuff decades ago. 
and it really, really cost them. So we thought if we bring our Google technology to this, uh, we can really make a big impact in this market. So we, we built Vault, uh, which is a cloud-native core banking engine, and we thought we will help retail banks modernize their tech stack and, and really be able to offer the same quality of, of experience that, that all the other pieces of technology we use day-to-day -day do. Interesting. So, so then tell us about like the, the, I mean, how do you guys make money? Like how, ah. how does that work? Yeah. So, so we make, I mean, we are a B2B company, so we sell a core banking engine to banks. Uh, so, so you've got to be a licensed bank and uh, we sell it as, uh, and it, it's just a subscription model, but very much like a software as a service model. Uh, and banks just, just pay a fee every year and they get all the upgrades for free. And, uh, you know, it, it's got a very good ARR kind of characteristics. And, uh, and, you know, we do professional services as well, but, but the backbone of the company is, 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 the, is the license revenue. Got it. Was it like a, like a beast for you to really get up to speed on all the uh, regulatory hurdles around, you know, operating as a fintech business? Um, it, it's not too bad. The, the actual direct hurdles aren't too bad, but it, the hard bit is, is much, the regulation hasn't been too bad, but the complexity of banking is, in essence, banking is very easy. Either I'm borrowing money from the bank or the bank's borrowing money from me. And it's done at different interest rates and different durations. And uh, you just need ways to move money. I mean, there's nothing conceptual about a bank. You, you know, it was done in Roman times. You know, it was, it was done in the Middle Ages. It was done in Victorian times. So there's nothing conceptually hard. But what is hard is all the different payment schemes. And we've got Visa and we've got MasterCard. And, and in the UK, we've got FPS. And in the States, we've got ACH. And you know, different ways of moving money and different ways of writing reports and different ways of validating things and different ways of doing money laundering checks. And you add all that stuff up, and it's a, it's a huge amount of stuff. So, so I think that was the hurdle, learning all the bits that aren't in the conceptual part of the bank, which is just about products and, uh, and loans and deposits. And uh, doing all that, and, and basically, it, you know, it, it's difficult to get an MVP in this stage, this uh, business, because you, you, know, you can't go live with half a bank. So, 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 so you need to be able to find some way of getting live and some, some proof points um, yeah. w without having to you know, uh, build a, a tier one bank. And how much capital have you guys raised today? Oh, oh uh, um, sorry, you put me on the spot now. Um, I think it's I think it's eighty two million pounds. So somebody do a quick conversion of yeah, dollars. hundred and five million, something like yeah, that. Yeah, hundred and five yeah. million dollars. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a lot when you say in one one lump. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and obviously this is your third business. You know, now you've seen all types of partners and people that can bring you know that is strategic you know like a lens to get things say forward. So so why did you choose the investors that you chose for this? Well, the the in a way, we chose ourselves. So, so IQ Capital are one of the UK's, uh, probably the UK's leading uh, seed fund, uh, and they're a deep tech fund from uh, from Cambridge. But they had invested in Phonetic Arts, and so Max Boughton, the partner there, and I met in 2007, and uh, we started doing that. And I mean, he was pretty uh, new in his career, and I was pretty new in my career. And uh, it has to be said, you know, we, we, we've built a strong relationship through that as well. So. I mean, he got his 5x return uh, in a few years. The, the relationship went dormant as I, as I was at Google, but as I, we always kept in touch. And then, uh, and then I actually invested some money in, in his fund. And then um, in 2016, he said, look, you know, we really want to invest in you. And we weren't even thinking about raising money, but, but, but we took some money and, uh, you know, and, and off it went. And he, you know, he invested, uh, you know, he's in, and, that was a, and that's proved to be a, a fantastic relationship. Max and I get on great. We're 
really feel like team members rather than any kind of investor, um, you know, founder story. And that's been great. And, and likewise with the, with the other funds, uh, Backed and Playfair, I had the personal relationships with the founders of those funds uh, before they invested. And, and so, so when you're a repeat entrepreneur, especially at the seed stage, it is pretty straightforward uh, uh, to get the money. Uh, Lloyd's, yeah. Lloyd's Banking Group were a customer and, and then they they decided they want to make an investment too. And, and that, that's been that's been tremendous as well. And, and the whole thing just kind of escalated from there. And talking about timing, eh? March is when you close your your last round. March, before the craziness of the coronavirus. Paul? Yeah, it, it was, uh, we, we actually signed everything in uh, in late January. We were just, just waiting a moment to drop the press release. But, but, uh, but indeed, uh, we were we, we were pretty fortunate with that. I mean, to be honest, I, I don't think the coronavirus impact of the business will be, will be huge. But uh, yeah. I, I, as we know, a lot of companies out there, it throws a lot of doubt on the market. Uh, and I definitely feel for many, many companies raising money because I was there twice before. I was there in the dot-com crash and I was there in the great financial crisis. So, so I know what it's like. I know how tough for uh, people it is. I'd say at this stage, very few people are worried about the money. It's just terrible if you see a business that you've yeah. worked so hard on, you know, that, that gets into trouble. Of course. So how big is that machine? I mean, you ha you guys have a, how many employees? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it, it, it's growing every day, but we, we passed 300 a, f uh, a few weeks ago. So wow. and uh, we're probably, uh, I, I don't think we'll get to 400 this year, but but but, but not far off. Wow, that's amazing. So, so Paul, so... One of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, you know, like the journey that you've had as a as an entrepreneur. So, so if you had that possibility to go back in time and and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Paul that that was coming out of a academia and thinking about like maybe like launching a business, knowing what you know now, what would be that piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self, and why if you were to launch a business? Um. I'll just make one observation first, which is, you know, when I think back on those, the, the, the first two companies, and when I think, think back on Thought Machine, the thing that I always remember is the people, and uh, at Rhetorical Systems in particular, it was just tremendous fun. Uh, and I go, you know, if you're not having fun in a tech startup, uh, you shouldn't be doing it. It, 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 is, it, is, a, it is filled with passion, uh, you know, filled with good times, and there's so many funny stories. So, so, so whatever you do, you know, make sure you can try and enjoy it in the way. But I think the more serious lesson is, um, you know, when you're young, you think about products. But when you're older, you think about markets. And today, I, I think about market. You know, the essence of it is, and I'm not the first person to say it's this product market fit. You know, just keep on dwelling in this issue is, you know, and you want to pick the biggest market as possible. That's something I met from Google. You know, because if you do all that backbreaking work and you put it through and you're successful, what's the point if the company can only make a couple of million dollars in revenue? If you are successful, that tremendous team and that tremendous work, uh, you want to make sure that you earn, you know, billions of dollars so that you can keep the company going and keep the whole thing going in a sustainable way and you don't have to keep on going back to investors. So big markets. And then the critical thing is what, what has everyone else missed? Now, you would think with the number of tech companies out there, that everything that could be done would be done. And we've heard all sorts of crazy ideas from startups. But believe me, all the time, and I mean all the time, there are huge opportunities that no one's thought of. And I think we effectively did that. Who, When we said we're going to build entire tier one banks in the cloud, people thought, thought we're crazy. You'll never do it. Banks won't be interested. 
And now, uh, you know, we've got, we've got customers, uh, we've got masses of interest as well because we're in the right place at the right time with the right product. So think about markets, think about real points of pain, and, and just instead of jumping in on, the, jumping on the, the next trend or anything else, just think, what has everybody else missed? And, uh, and don't be afraid to back yourself if you find it. Wow, I love it. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Paul, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, so so uh, you can, uh, the best way to do it is through the Thought Machine website uh, uh, or, uh, or if, you, if, if you want to, th uh, through LinkedIn. Um, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be happy to connect. Fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.